welcome to the Rewild Together podcast. I'm your host, Lana Joypara, and today I am interviewing Eliza Lee, who is the founder and executive director of Fire and Flower, which is an organization that offers girls mentorship and rite of passage programs. A couple years ago, I actually reached out to Eliza to support me through an initiation um, through a wilderness excursion, and that uh, came from a calling from my ancestors that I had experienced where they were calling me to go through an initiation onto the path that I'm now on. And so um, she was uh, vital in how she helps everything come together, and it was one of the most Um, unique and uh, incredibly supported experiences I have been on and um, so I just knew that she would have really great things to share um, with you listeners and that she would also have a very interesting perspective on what it means to rewild so that will come up in today's interview and I hope you enjoy all right, so thanks for joining me today, Eliza. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to just start by kicking us off with um, telling us about what you do for work and play? Yeah, sure. Uh, my main work right now is running a charity nonprofit called Fire and Flower, and um, we do mentorship and rites of passage programs for girls ages 10 to 14. And um, as well, uh, aside from that, I do some work with adults once a summer doing what we call Wilderness Vigil. Um, and this is something, a, a new name we've given to what is more uh, commonly known as Vision Fast or Vision Quests. And this is our uh, decolonized renaming of it, uh, knowing that a Vision Quest was a very specific term used to describe a very specific Lakota ceremony that was um, observed a while back. So that's something I do for adults, uh, Rite of Passage mm. itself, mm. Um, in that way. Um, and then I also do some grief rituals, uh, community-based grief rituals uh, that I do a few times a year. And so these are all things that, uh, yeah, I feel very humble uh, to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, for play, uh, I'm outside a lot uh, in nature and um, biking, running, hiking. Uh, it's kind of my happy space to be outdoors in the forest. Mm. And have you always been very outdoorsy? Well, I guess, so my parents, we always went camping, um, particularly fishing when I was younger. Mm. And, um, but that was mostly actually because of food. So my family, my parents immigrated from Hong Kong in the late 70s to a small town in Kitimat, uh, northern BC. And they just... uh, it was hard to get fresh food and they came Mm -hmm. from a culture and a big city that always had fresh food. And so, um, we went out to fish all the time to have fresh fish, Mm -hmm. um, and had an extensive garden with like Chinese vegetables and greens. Um, that was a huge pride for my family. So Mm -hmm. that's really what drew us outside. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I find that really, really interesting that that was, my uh, initial connection was through food. Mm-hmm. And how did your relationship to the wilderness and nature and the outdoors shift since then? Yeah, I, I guess as a child, um, the idea of recycling started, and I was always on board. It just made sense to me, um, you know, this idea of like helping or saving the, the planet. 
Um, and then as I got older uh, in university, um, I was able to have some of my first like so like human powered um, wilderness trips. You know, mm-hmm. with my family it was always mm-hmm. car camping, mm-hmm. um, and so suddenly just like having the experience of doing everything on my own and realizing like how powerful that is to really be self-reliant on this body um, and then to surrender to the wilderness. Um, And then also in this context was with uh, youth. So um, these were at-risk youth that I was working with in the wilderness. And it was incredible witnessing them, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, come from their challenging backgrounds and um, the peace that they found uh, just by spending time in nature and the transformation that we saw in Mm -hmm. them so quickly uh, we never really had any management issues because they just uh, yeah just being in nature being held in Mm -hmm. that space Mm -hmm. so I really experienced the transformative um, power of nature through that Um, Mm -hmm. yeah so those were really important times for me Mm -hmm. wow yeah I can see how that would shift from just seeing how transformative uh, nature can be and how Um, yeah, I think about the kind of wider circle of, you know, whether it's trees or the ocean or whatever, like the wilderness that's holding space for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how did you start to get into the work with, uh, fire and flower? Yeah. Um, I, in many ways I, I was chosen. (laughs) It's not something that I chose. Um, back in 2012, I was at an outdoor gathering and, um, this gathering, there were two elder women there and they announced that they were holding something called a walk back ceremony. And they said this was for adult women who were not honored, uh, when they were coming of age as young Mm -hmm. girls, um, and that they wanted to be. So Mm -hmm. this was a chance to walk back to that time in your life to be honored in the ways that you weren't. And at that time, I really knew nothing about this concept, this idea of rites of passage. Mm-hmm. Um, but in hearing this offering, there was just something clearly in me that was a, like a yes, like, yes, I, I don't know what this is about, but I, yeah, I, I want this. And I can remember back when I was 11 and um, you know, puberty really starting to hit and mm-hmm. getting my period for the first time. There were mm-hmm. so many big things happening for me. And I felt so alone. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like the vastness in me never being reflected back to me. And um, it was hard. It was a, it was a hard time. Um, and so there was something in what these elder women talked about that just from that part of me back then just was a clear yes. Mm-hmm. Um so the, the, it actually went, it took a few days to go through and we had um, some challenges, some really beautiful moments. Um, and by the end of it, I just, I couldn't believe how I felt. Like I had never felt that beautiful before in my life. Mm-hmm. I had never felt so much joy exuding out of me. Um, and I just knew how incredible I was. It was like, um, something just opened up inside of me. Mm. Um, but it wasn't just me feeling so great. I could see it in other people too. Mm. And so 
the competitiveness that I'd experienced before, the insecurities that I'd um, experienced before, those just really, really melted away. Um, and I'd, I'd never felt so aligned with life mm. before. Um, I felt the smallness that I was, and at the same time, how absolutely significant I was in being alive. Um, and I was just like, this is possible? Mm. <laughs> I know we could feel this way. Um, and I just got so excited. I was like, how do other people feel like this? You know, how do we um, get this to more people? Because mm. this is so amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up, at that point, I had walked away from a master's degree. I had quit um, in environmental education. And I was so just thrown off and transformed by this particular ceremony that I needed to understand it better. Mm. And I needed to, I wanted to have dedicated time that I could really dive in. And so um, I returned to my master's and I said like, okay, what I have left is a thesis degree or a thesis to do. And so I'm going to take that opportunity to study women's rights of passage and understand mm. what happened to me. Mm. Um, so I, I did that for a year. It was really, really incredible. Meeting some really amazing people, reading some great books. Yeah, so after finishing my master's, I knew um, I needed more field work to understand how this actually worked. So I went to the States and um, did some training with the School of Lost Borders that does... Um, does fasting, vision fast guiding. And, um, and then I apprenticed with uh, Rites of Passage Journeys, which is a beautiful organization just south of the border. Um, they're close to Seattle. And they do uh, wilderness rites of passages for youth uh, and really learned how it's done, you know, out in the wilderness, how to really usher youth into young womanhood and adulthood. Um, and it was really, really amazing. And this whole time, I didn't have a plan of what was going to happen. Mm. Um, I just knew this was something that I really needed to understand. Mm. And by the end of it, I came back, uh, you know, led a normal life um, until a friend of mine introduced me to a mother whose name was Leela. And uh, Leela said to me, she's... <laughs> I've been wanting for 15 years to have a local rite of passage for my daughter. And she said, I can't do it. And she's like, I think you're the one to do it. And I just kind of like, kind of daring headlights and took me a while. And I was like, yeah, I think I can do this. I think I actually have all the knowledge and training to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how Fire and Flower started. We had three families um, and, um, we worked together for over four months and uh, really made it happen. And it was this beautiful community that came together uh, leading up to it that uh, sat with me to create curriculum, offered their skills and their passions. You know, we had one woman come up to me and she said, I have an equine trained therapy horse. Like, just let me know, and, you know, like anytime. Um, you know, we had like... Um, leadership coaches offer their time to me mm. and so it was just this beautiful offering of all these women saying mm. like this is important mm. um what can I do 
And uh, so that was the beginning of it in 2018 mm-hmm. and um, slowly becoming a nonprofit and uh, this past year getting charity status. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. been a, a wild ride and uh, really exciting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been really, um, you know, interested in this analogy that Elizabeth Gilbert um, wrote about recently. It's this um, map of the Mississippi River from the... Um, this guy created it, I think, in mm, actually the late 19th century. Um, and it was a meander map of the Mississippi River. And I just, I've been so struck by this image of how the river, you know, is initially kind of following this one certain curve and then it uh, will ch- shift course over centuries, like decades and centuries. And um, it was just this really, really beautiful map. And um, it, just with what you're saying uh, about not having planned mm. everything, um, there's this John O'Donohue poem that I like, and I'm going to slightly mix it up right now, but it's like, um, I long to live as a river yeah. flows, surprised by my own unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's just so beautiful. I really mm. love, uh, I, I don't know, I just, I feel an affinity with rivers and river metaphors for, yeah. for life, you yeah, know? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. For the flow of life, yeah. so... Yeah. Um, so how did your grief work weave its way into all of this? Oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Well, I think um, every time I hold a grief ritual, um, even though I'm, I'm facilitating it, uh, it's a, it's a space for me to also process my own grief. And I think um, there's just so much going on in doing this work, particularly with young women, uh, going into the issues with them. And I'm always so shocked by how much they clearly know about the stereotypes that are laid on them and, um, the weight of all that and, Mm -hmm. and, um, body image issues. Like they're very aware and, um, it's something to really grieve about, you know, these, these young girls who are, uh, ready to inherit the world uh and they already feel at quite a young age so constrained Mm -hmm. and um so it's heavy and and there's a fine balance for me of um exposing them to for to information to prepare them and to protect them Mm -hmm. but then also being the one to sort of break their innocence Mm -hmm. and um yeah, that can feel really heavy at times mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like anything, you know, you do the best you can do and you just never quite know, you know, if, 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 uh, if it, sometimes if it was the right decision. And, mm-hmm. um, so it's a lot of planting seeds and a lot of hope. Um, mm-hmm. but doing the grief work has given me tools to, to process and, and manage those pieces for sure. Um, and then to see others show up to do their own grief work is just, it's so beautiful and uh, it brings me so much hope um, for the future, for these girls that are coming through and um, because grief is a huge sign of love. Mm -hmm. You you only grieve what you really love and so to gather really to express our deep love is such an honor, (laughs) you know, to witness, to hold. um, So... In some ways, even though it seems um, 
like something to stay away from, which our culture uh, is trained to do, it's actually something that is fuel for me mm-hmm. that keeps me going mm-hmm. in, in all the all this kind of work. So I am curious because you were mentioning earlier about these elders with the Wakpak ceremony. I, I was, you know, I'm hearing that they kind of initiated you onto that mm-hmm. path. Um, uh, and I'm just curious about how eldership currently shows up in your work and your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at the very beginning of Fire and Flower, um, because this is land-based work, you know, all, um, one of our main pillars is um, is nature connection, I wasn't even sure if it was appropriate for me to do this work, you know, on, on stolen land. And so I went to one of my mentors, um, elder mentors, his name is Shane Point. He's a Musqueam and Nochalmuth elder and ceremonialist. And I just asked him, you know, like, is this even okay that I'm doing this? And, um, yeah, he was very square and clear with me. And he's like, this is so important. Like, this, you need to do this. And um, so I was like, okay, you know. And along the way, um, also guided me. You know, he's like, here's someone from the First Nations Health Authority so you can check if what you're doing is appropriate or not, if it's culturally safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, great guidance to have. And in my own, uh, reflections of, um, decolonization, there have been specific things that, uh, that we don't do anymore. You know, we don't smudge anymore and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so that, yeah, that, that was huge, um, for me to, to get his blessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another elder who really feeds into a lot of, um, the work that I do. Her name is Alfie um, Dylan Shaw. And she teaches sexuality and sacred sexuality. And a lot of what I've received from her goes into the curriculum. And, and not just the actual um, content, but how to hold space. Mm. You know, how to hold these girls well and um, help everybody feel honored. So, for example, something really simple is um, in all the circles that I'm in with Elfie, outside the circle, there's this extra space. And it's just, it's called a solo spot. You know, it's for anyone at any time. If they still want to be a part of the group, but they just need some time alone. They don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be asked. Um, but they still want to be there. So mm-hmm. that's the space where you can go at any time. And when you're there, that's what will happen. You know, you're still definitely counted in, but we're not going to ask you questions. We're not going to approach you for anything. Mm. Um, just know that you have that space to yourself. Mm. So a simple practice like that I've, I've brought um, to all my programs. And, and I see the girls really appreciate it. Mm. You know, they feel there's so many pressures for them in their lives. Mm. It's just such a relief to know that there's always a spot for them mm. where they still belong, mm. but they can just take their own time and their mm. own space mm. um, so yeah I've been really grateful for that but most of our programs that we do are shorter five-day programs in spring break and summer um, they're more like psychoeducational um, right now we don't have mentors that come in for that our longer program it's a six-month program originally it was four months when we started in 2018 and now it's extended to six months that is our uh, main rite of passage program, which is very personal. It's not just about you becoming a young woman, but it's 
really asking the question, who are you as a young woman? Mm -hmm. And who do you want to be as Mm -hmm. a young woman? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of personal mentorship with that. Each girl's paired with an adult woman who's her mentor for six months. Um, And in that, I would love to have like a resident uh, elder or two, um, you know, to really just be there for Mm -hmm. the girls. And and at first, I want to just present them this six-month program and ask them, you know, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Mm -hmm. What's missing? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, where do you want to come in Mm -hmm. and really include them in that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so if you yourself listening um, is an elder who's interested or know somebody, I would love to start a conversation um, about that with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that because, uh, you know, it brings up for me the way that pods of orcas really benefit from Mm. the um, postmenopausal orcas um, because orcas also go through menopause um, that actually show uh, the younger ones where the good pickings are in times of uh, you know like low salmon run so um, I just really believe in that ability of matriarchs um, and you know the crone and not in a derogatory way um, but the the role of the crone in bringing us more pearls of wisdom from the from their lives mm-hmm. that they've gathered right and mm-hmm. so I see that in you know orca populations as well as uh, how that can play out for human societies so um, yeah you know I hear this like kind of maiden mother crone kind of the archetypes and how important they all are mm-hmm. and how you can't really have the full power of that kind of trinity archetype or that like triple goddess archetype without all three being there so yeah definitely and in our first time we had the rite of passage program in 2018 um beautiful soul pia massey she came and volunteered to be our cook And she was the elder, Mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. And for the majority of her life, um, she's been quite the activist. And so over mealtimes, she would just tell us the most incredible stories. Mm -hmm. um, And the girls just flocked to her. Mm -hmm. You know, she was like our elder. Um, And in the end, you know, when we returned home and had this big feast with their families, in the end, like, they went to her and thanked her personally and asked her, like, can we stay in contact with you? Mm-hmm. You know, and and everybody else involved in the project, we'd known each other for about two months up to that point, and they'd mm-hmm. only known Pia for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, like, you know, there was just mm-hmm. this clear um, attraction and draw mm-hmm. to her for what she had to offer them, so mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And I also just want to add to mm-hmm. what you're talking about, the maiden mother crone, mm-hmm. that in Rites of Passage work... Um, especially with uh, the rite of passage of um, from girl to young woman, mm-hmm. is also the archetype of the auntie, mm. you know, which mm. here is the mentors. Um, mm. Because it's really important in this work that because these girls are, in essence, preparing themselves to leave home, mm-hmm. um, their mom plays a very specific role mm-hmm. of support mm-hmm. and unconditional love, mm-hmm. but they're not the ones to bridge mm-hmm. them into womanhood because mm-hmm. that bridge, which is played by the mentor or the aunties, mm-hmm. is a bridge to the wider world mm-hmm. where the mom is mm-hmm. associated to their original home home. Mm-hmm. These girls are carving out a new home for themselves, mm-hmm. you know, in the big world. Um, and so the mom, in some ways, steps 
back, I guess, like mm-hmm. is not as active, mm-hmm. um, but plays a very important role where mm-hmm. it's the time where the aunties step up in a very much more active role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just hearing that as an auntie, uh, I feel really moved. I feel chills um, thinking about that. You know, my nieces aren't there yet, um, but I really, um, you know, there's a lot of like I hear, I, I'm hearing the words coming up for me, like sacred responsibility, that that's like a very, very, um, position of trust, Yes. you know, and, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about the, how hard it can be to feel that weight of kind of breaking the innocence. And I hear that as being kind of unique to this role of the ante, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's archetypal ante or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, it just makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, that I can see the, the role of the mom, you know, supporting and, and being there for conversations, mm-hmm. but that that break potentially being, you know, someone that, that is part of that bridging into that outside world. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm also curious about how, um, nature, does or could serve a role or play a role as elder yeah for sure constantly Mm. (laughs) uh and in this work nature for me is is a co-guide and a co-teacher well the main teacher really Mm. um are so in a rite of passage um like especially i'd say for young people the element of perceived challenge is so important Mm -hmm. and um you know they're they're trying to understand their place in the world and so they need to be stretched um to to understand that and and when they are given challenge in going through the challenge because you know if you give each person the same challenge and they will do it a bit differently because they have their own innate skills and interests and passions and so Mm -hmm. um our job as aunties and mentors is to reflect that back to them. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, you know, Mm -hmm. you all tackled the same thing. And yet look at you, you did this way and you did it that way. And these are all reflections of how unique you are Mm -hmm. so they can claim those gifts. And so with nature, one of the main challenges we do is um, we put the girls out on an eight hour solo. And so we go on a big camping trip and um, the girls choose. Well, we tell them, you know, let yourself be chosen by the spot mm. and um there they spend eight hours and um that's a long time you know for a 12 13 14 year old and um we guide them to have an intention going out so possibly something they might be letting go of uh, from their childhood possibly something they want to work on in moving into this new phase in life mm. so and that acts as a as like a a question put out to nature and then in that eight hours nature responds and Mm -hmm. answers in a way that there's no way any of us humans could Mm -hmm. um the timing of things that happen and and even though all the girls are in the you know a relatively same area Mm -hmm. each of them have such a unique experience Mm -hmm. because each of them have a different intention so Mm -hmm. different things happen different Mm -hmm. animals visit them Mm -hmm. Um, this like the exact spot they choose is for some reason always perfect mm. to fit what they're meant to learn, mm. to fit the, the answer to their question. Mm-hmm. And so um, they return <laughs> uh, as these exuberant uh, 
representations of what life can be mm-hmm. and um, what really put me, what keeps me for sure doing this work is that anytime anyone, uh, young person or older, goes out into nature for an extended period of time by themselves with a really clear intention in a really um, intentional ceremonial way, mm-hmm. they return in a way that is like the most beautiful, glowing, like essentialness of, of human potential that I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Like mm-hmm. they really are glowing mm-hmm. and how they speak. There's a certain way with how they speak that is just like so lovely, like mm-hmm. the cadence and the flow of their speech and the diction they mm-hmm. choose. Mm-hmm. Um, they really themselves come back speaking as elders mm-hmm. with all these nuggets of wisdom. Uh, and I'm just continually awed with how perfectly each question is always answered. Mm-hmm. And so my job then, receiving them when they come back, is to hear their stories Mm. and really help them see that. Mm. To help them see how their question, their intention was really answered Mm. in a very specific way that is um, so special to them. So nature as an elder, yes. And um, these young people come back embodying that nature as elder and um you know it's so personal to them and Mm. yet it's their gift that they come back really for everyone um and they come back with this incredible resilience and this like foundational um sense of themselves that they carry forward um and when they come back uh we return um to a big feast their families receive us uh back in uh back home and uh immediately you can tell Mm. you know their families you can tell their faces and their expressions that they notice something is different about Mm. their daughter and and this girl that left and now has returned as a young woman you know it's it's in her presence it's in like the way she holds herself um yeah it's it's like you can see (laughs) their jaws drop uh it's quite beautiful and um so yeah nature is the greatest elder and and it's just so so humbling to see the generosity of nature lending well not lending but helping us remember our Mm. potential and um and becoming more and more back to um our our like deepest selves i would say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so you know when you're saying these words of remembering back to our deepest selves um that brings up for me the word rewild Mm -hmm. and so I'm just curious about uh what comes up for you with that word yeah uh with rewild it's synonymous for me to remembering and and I don't mean um you know remembering a memory like that but what I mean is like membering again Mm -hmm. so you know, becoming a part, becoming a member again of something um, that you were disconnected from. Mm. And so to me, it's sort of, it's membering ourselves again with nature, membering ourselves with these patterns of life and patterns of being a human and these stages of life of being a human that really um, matter and they make Mm. us who we are and that have been 
for so long, for the vast majority of us being human, they've been marked. They've mm-hmm. been honored. There have mm-hmm. been um, usherings of people through this, through ceremony and in very specific ways in different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and to allow us to just be again and, and, um, and remember those pieces. Um, yeah, so to me it's the same as rewilding. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yeah, my work is rewilding, you know, with mm-hmm. the youth and also mm-hmm. with the grief work, you know, allowing people to practice grief again. Um, and, and my work with girls is very similar with the adults doing the wilderness vigils as well. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So I think, you know, it's clear how your work is, um, you know, an example of rewilding. And, uh, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to what you were describing about your own experience of how you felt after the walk back ceremony. Uh, you described feeling, um, you know, like reconnected to this like unparalleled joy and feeling more beautiful than mm-hmm. ever before and um you know more open and more aligned with life mm-hmm. and i'm just curious about how how that experience uh what the life of that experience itself has been you know is it like a cup that was full and then it can uh, it can deplete and then need refilling or how does that play out for you yeah um I think I was very fortunate in my particular case that um, I had quite a lot of mentorship afterwards. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, you know, just felt all these things I never felt before. Um, and then I came home. <laughs> I was like, what do I do now? You know, I just, all these big things. Um, and within the month, I um, connected with these three elder women, I think they were all in their 60s at the time, um, and they just took me in, and they ended up mentoring me for the next year, so every week I saw at least two of them, mm. and they taught me different things. One was a Celtic shaman, one was a bioenergy healer, one was um, a counselor, and so learned lots of different things, uh, learned about ceremony, learned about connecting with my ancestors, learned about sort of like how to, the energetics in the body and how to work mm. with the body. Mm. Um, learned uh, about counseling and counseling techniques and things like that. So, and with their support, like I just, if I thought like a lot happened to me in just a few days of that ceremony, like so much more happened in the year after. Mm. Just so much opening and mm. blossoming and speaking up in ways that I wouldn't before and um, I just felt so solid. Mm. Um, and so that is so important. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, a lot of these big transformative openings, they often happen, you know, in retreat centers when we go away to do, you know, these different programs and courses and retreats. Um, and there's a big danger in coming home and not having um, the support to land and integrate that into your regular life because mm-hmm. that really is the hardest piece. Mm-hmm. And so I've taken what I learned uh, in my experience and really integrated that into Fire and Flower. So for our six-month program, we go away to do our big camping trip where we have this wilderness solo about halfway through the program. And that way, when the girls come back, you know, very open with all these new ideas of who they are and who they can be, 
there's still a good two, three months where we're still with them, still meeting regularly, still Mm -hmm. mentoring them Mm -hmm. to be like, yeah, you are returning home to your family, Mm -hmm. to your friends, Mm -hmm. to this culture that puts you in boxes, Mm -hmm. that expects certain things of you. So how, how, what do we do about it? Mm. What do you want to do about mm. it? And we're here. Mm. Um, so that's, yeah, that's been mm-hmm. really, really an important component of the program. Mm-hmm. I love that because how many times have we, you know, go, gone through whatever kind of shifts, whether it's been through something very ceremonial, uh, uh, like a rite of passage, or just something has shifted for us. And we just suddenly feel different. And then... Uh, our friends and family um, don't necessarily recognize that or integrate that new you. And Mm -hmm. so they still kind of like have that expectation of who who you were before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're still kind of projecting that or imputing that onto you. Mm -hmm. So I just really value that, um, you know, the fact that there's that guidance to support these people who, um, they've changed and you were saying that their families often can really see that change because it is so palpable and like for those that don't or for whoever might fall into old patterns mm-hmm. um how to navigate that with this new way of being right yeah. it's so 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 beautiful it's um, never an overnight thing no you know? it takes yeah. time mm. little by little mm-hmm. um so to help the girls be realistic about that mm-hmm. you know, that um that you've had this huge experience and and you know, it's just like breathing, uh, you know, inhaling and exhaling. Mm-hmm. So after mm-hmm. a huge opening, you're going to inevitably have a contraction. Mm-hmm. And um, often we're not taught that, mm-hmm. that like, this is, this is normal. You're mm-hmm. going to have a contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that what happened didn't happen. Mm-hmm. This is just part of the process. Mm-hmm. And we're still with you on this. Mm-hmm. So this brings up for me uh, Inanna, um, you know, this ancient Sumerian myth about, uh, or legend or tale about um, the queen of heaven and earth and her journey um, to the underworld to meet her twin sister, Erashkigal. And are you familiar with this? A little bit, and I always love hearing it again, so please do. Yeah, just what, what, I really, really sat with this story for quite a while, Mm -hmm. um, a number of years ago and what always really struck me was this story about you know so she's called she just feels compelled to go to the underworld and um you know everyone's kind of wondering why like she kind of has everything that she needs and people um just really adore her and love her and uh but she feels called to go to the underworld to meet a Rashkigal, who's you know the god- goddess of the underworld and um uh, is not well loved, I guess we'll say. And so, uh, during her journey, she passes through these seven kind of gateways and has to shed different parts of, you know, her kind of surface life and, you know, like her tiara and her, you know, robes that are like, uh, all examples of how lavish and rich her life is, how abundant they are. And she kind of strips down to her core as she meets Ereshkigal. And this Jungian analysis of it is that, um, you know, Ereshkigal represents her own unconscious. And so she needs to go like deeper within herself and remove everything that she 
benefits from by repressing the unconscious mm-hmm. and repressing her shadow to the unconscious and, and staying there. She needs to shed all of that um, in order to go down and really do this integration with Ereshkigal um, or with her shadow. And um, so to me, like what I hear with the importance of the integration as you come back into your present day life is I think it's important as you're coming back through those seven gateways to do it in a very intentional way and very, you know, not rushed Mm -hmm. and not just going back into the way life was before, right? Like she is no longer just Mm -hmm. the queen of heaven and earth. She is now, you know, combined with this twin aspect of herself, right? right? The shadow. And um, she actually comes back and in the story, she kills, um, uh, Dumuzi, her, her husband. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and to me, that's like showing, you know, everything's very symbolic. And so, uh, it's, it's showing the power of your, you know, like Eresh Kigal is known as being a, a, a being of wrath and showing like, okay, wrath isn't just all bad and rage isn't just all bad. And anger isn't all bad, right? It's like, what do those things actually do? How do they help us with boundaries, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just, I was really um, being reminded of that when you were talking about that integration component with yeah. community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of, of two things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, one of my favorite things uh, in Fire and Flower programs is creating spaces where girls can express anger, mm-hmm. you know, showing mm-hmm. them ways that they can do that. And mm-hmm. it's so important. Mm-hmm. And, um, and some of them just light up. They're like, are you serious? Mm-hmm. Like we get to do this, you mm-hmm. know, be angry and like hit a, like, you know, use a bat and hit a pillow. It's like, yes, like do it. And, um, yeah. And, and they, they feel it and it's, it's, um, yeah, so, so amazing to create space for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing I'm reminded of is the the story of Persephone, mm-hmm. you know, and, and her going to the underworld, you know, quote unquote, I, I like to rethink myths, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're told that she was kidnapped mm-hmm. by Hades, the king mm-hmm. of the underworld. But, mm-hmm. but I wonder about that, you know, uh, about her being a maiden who is probably pretty curious, you know, wants to know the world. And um, so I wonder if she was actually kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tale goes, you know, that that um, she has to stay uh, in the end half the year in the underworld because she ate a single pomegranate seed. Mm-hmm. And I, I question that too. You know, mm-hmm. I wonder, like, mm-hmm. did she, was she tricked into eating it or did she actually choose that, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. choose? Again, because it's uh, a tale of leaving home. You know, mm-hmm. she was very much at her mother's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she went to the other uh, underworld, uh, her mother Demeter just cried and cried and cried. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have winter. Mm-hmm. But when I think of her being this budding young woman, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what if she really did mm-hmm. fall in love with Hades mm-hmm. and chose very purposely mm-hmm. to eat that fruit, to mm-hmm. be there? Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of reclaiming and, and rewriting these stories that we've been given mm-hmm. Um, is a big thing of, mm. of what we do uh, in Fire and Flower and um, in, in a way that empowers the girls. Um, so, yeah, mm. that brought that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that, that brings up for me this term that you mentioned earlier, sacred sexuality, right? So, you know, just reimagining Persephone as having chosen to be with Hades, right? And so... Um, you know, when you say that phrase, sacred sexuality, like, what does that 
mean? Hmm. Um, I guess at the level with the girls, uh, it's about letting them know um, beyond the mechanics of uh, of the whole picture of what sex and sexuality mm-hmm. can represent, and also um, that it's it's uh, connects with a lot of us. So. Um, I, I show them a model um, about how to approach relationships and sexuality. And in it, we account for like um, values. You know, what values do you have? What values have you been taught by your family, um, by your beliefs, by the media, by mm-hmm. your friends? You know, mm-hmm. so how do these actually influence you? Um, what does your body say right now? Mm-hmm. Do you feel safe? Are you relaxed? Mm-hmm. You know, what does your intuition say? And then we look at emotions and, and the heart you know, and, and um, what, what do they say about this situation? And then we also include the mind, that it's like a powerful tool, mm. you know, of, of like understanding and, and um, um, getting ready, you know. So what do you need to know to, to feel good in this situation, um, to feel safe in this situation, mm. whether it's uh, something sexual or not? Um, and so to really give a more well-rounded representation of what this could be, Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, and also being really clear about choices, mm. you know, um, and creating a, a a picture that is not just black and white. Um, yeah. So the hope, you know, is that um, these girls go forward against the tide of of peers and peer pressure with a broader understanding of, of the potential mm. of, of sexuality mm-hmm. and, and all the huge options they can have. Um, we talk about ple- self-pleasure, um, which I don't think is touched upon a lot in sex education in school. Mm. Um, you know, for female bodies, the power of the clitoris, mm. right? And, and um, all, yeah, about that. So again, they hopefully have a, a, a richer picture mm-hmm. of... Um, of their bodies and also how to relate to someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just find this work, you know, so, so, so important because I think, uh, rape culture has made its way into, uh, our understanding of sex and sexuality, even in ways that are not necessarily like easily recognizable. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I know we were talking earlier about, um, this idea that hymens need to break uh, with, you know, the quote-unquote loss of virginity, right? And um, and that that's actually, like, just anatomically incorrect, right? And, uh, yeah, there's a resource I can share in the show notes, um, but basically about how there's this renaming of the hymen to this um, vaginal corona, and that really if there's uh you know like sufficient arousal and um and relaxation uh the and enough uh lubrication um thanks to arousal fluid and etc then really um that first ever act of uh penetrative in- intercourse does not need to be damaging mm-hmm. or breaking or ripping or causing 
you know, blood and pain, right? Mm -hmm. And that's so often like our expectation of what that first time has to be, you know? And it just breaks my heart and it actually Mm -hmm. like even infuriates me because that's, that's setting us up to experience, like expect pain and to uh, basically sell ourselves short on what we could potentially experience mm-hmm. with sex. And it removes this accessibility of having this connection to the sacred through sex because it's just going to be painful. And that's mm-hmm. just, you know, the fact that it is so anatomically incorrect and yet that's this understanding that it is like, so pervasive in our culture like for me that was a huge learning for me to realize that that wasn't actually true Mm -hmm. you know and it um in a way I guess it makes sense because if the hymen did like you know fully cover like how would our menstrual blood come out right how would we ever insert tampons or a cup or anything like that right um and it's just something like where I guess I accepted it as just that's just the way it is Um, and I just counted myself as lucky when my first time wasn't painful or bloody or whatever, you know? And, uh, anyway, (laughs) so I just really, really value that, um, component as being part of this work because it is so important to help, um, help these next generations rewrite the script and reclaim the script and, uh, stop rape culture in its tracks. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's this funny thing where, um, you know, as adults, we're relearning and discovering, uh, things like this, right? Mm-hmm. The vaginal corona. It's like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. it's this amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And then when I teach the girls, it's just, you know, new knowledge for them. So they're just inheriting it as mm-hmm. fact, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so it's, it's, um, it's, it's always fascinating to me, you know, so mm-hmm. on my end, I'm like, this is so amazing, you know, and, and they're like, okay, yep, you know, like, just accepting it as first time yeah. knowledge, and yeah. um, so then I'm curious, you know, as, as they grow up, mm-hmm. you know, what more is going to continue mm-hmm. to be understood and, and demystified and mm-hmm. corrected, um, yeah, so that excites me, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, it, it's, it's, there's always grief, too, of, like, um, that's taken this long for us to know mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. about the vaginal corona mm-hmm. um, that so many of us for so long grew up with this mm-hmm. misinformation mm-hmm. and fear, right? A fear of the first mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. that balance of, of um, grief and, and excitement at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think about a lot of my clients who are learning about, like, we kind of, go through like basic anatomy and physiology and uh, hormones, et cetera. And um, we look at the uterus and then we like point out the cervix, et cetera. And then we zoom in on just the cervix and we see these like tree like branches Mm. that go through the cervix and that those are the cervical crypts where cervical mucus is made. Mm. And it is so sophisticated and amazing it's like it's my favorite slide in uh, my kind of intro presentation with clients and um the fact that they depending on the um, dominant hormone that is influencing the body at the time um so uh you know in the first part of the cycle when it's estrogen um 
as estrogen kind of rises, those cervical crypts will produce a fertile cervical mucus that will be noticeable at the level of the vulva. And so you can feel this kind of lubricated sensation as you're wiping. And um, that cervical mucus itself is actually also alkaline, which is conducive to sperm surviving. And they actually create um, these kind of like swimming lanes and channels that like boost sperm along. So, you know, in my sex ed, I learned that, uh, you know, sperm make this epic journey to the egg and they wouldn't do it without cervical mucus, (laughs) you know? So anyway, I just, and then the last part of the cycle, um, uh, cervical mucus will change, um, from being this more alkaline and these channels, um, to being a more acidic pH, so it does not, uh, it's more hostile to sperm. And then it also creates more of like a mesh barrier, like a log oh, wow. down that does not let sperm get through or other pathogens or bacteria or whatever. Um, and, you know, just anytime I share this kind of stuff or, um, or even like the hormonal fluctuations throughout our cycle and how, you know, the pill or any kind of um, hormonal contraception does not regulate your hormones, even if that's what uh, you've been told. I just feel this rage from these mm. adult clients that I work with. Of like, Why didn't yeah. I learn this earlier? You know, especially mm-hmm. for clients who've been on something like uh, that's been d- disrupting their hormonal rhythms for years and years and years. And if they'd had fully informed consent, yeah they wouldn't have actually made that decision, yeah. right? And that's what breaks my heart is just hearing again and again that they never knew this and they never learned these things and they never... And I felt that myself, you know? That's what brought me into this work myself mm. is like, I, I did not know any of this stuff and then I just felt this fire under me like, oh my, like more people need to know this, you know? And not just um, people with female bodies. Like everyone needs to understand these things, yeah. right? So Yeah, feeling cheated. Yeah. Yeah, and hearing that, like, wishing that they'd learn this at a younger age, and then hearing that, you know, if you do hear it at a younger age, it's just like, yeah, well, that's just the way it is. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, it is funny. Yeah, what's mind-blowing for us is not for the next, <laughs> the next generation. Well, thanks so much for meeting with me today. Mm-hmm. Um, I am just curious if you have any like openings or invitations or sharings that you'd like to to share out with the listeners um well there are um uh we're running our summer programs right now which is great uh excited to actually have our biggest summer Mm -hmm. and um and then starting next spring of 2022 that's when we will be starting our six-month rite of passage program we're really really excited about that um, so yeah, we'd love for people to know about that. Um, we are a charity, so, uh, we definitely accept donations and greatly appreciate that. If anyone is willing to support us, you know, there, there are just some real operational costs that are, is required for us. And, um, we've been working really hard for the last three years, pretty much exclusively voluntarily. And, um, and so we're really trying hard to start being financially, um, viable. I guess the last piece I would say is it's been my plan all along with Fire and Flower that when the girls' programs have um, are more stable, mm-hmm. um, for me to then move on, uh, not move on, but expand mm-hmm. and um, create programs for adult mm-hmm. women as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and excited to invite other mm-hmm. teachers and experts like yourself, mm-hmm. you know, to collaborate and because um, that's the most humbling thing is like uh, I'm not an expert in there's just so much mm-hmm. there's so much to learn and share and um, and I'm someone who's good at uh, holding that container. Uh, and I'm definitely not an expert on all these things mm. <laughs> so mm. much. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, to having uh, programs for adults, um, mm. you know, all sorts. And um, so open to collaboration mm-hmm. and um, creating. It's really exciting for me mm. down the road. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, yeah, I just know that when I was sharing about your summer programs that are for um, the certain age group, just so many people saying, oh my God, I want this for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I know that there will be a lot of, um, you know, like a captive audience for that. So that's really great yeah. uh, to hear that you have that up your sleeve. Yeah. In the past for two years, I did um, the Wilderness Vigil just for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so amazing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a possibility as well through mm-hmm. Fire and Flower. And um, so, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to that, um, that richness and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so great. Mm-hmm. So you also have a video available that where people could learn more about you know just your journey into Fire and Flower and more about the um, the program with you know some visuals like with your PowerPoint presentation that is through your Groundswell uh, experience. So mm-hmm. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's all also on our website, which mm-hmm. is fireandflowergirls.org. So you can also find. Perfect. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Eliza. No problem. Pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. So thank you for tuning in today with the Rewild Together podcast. And I hope you enjoyed everything as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with Eliza. And uh, I really do encourage you to reach out to her if, you know, either you're an elder who is looking to support this kind of programming and this kind of, um, you know, rites of passages for, for young girls, or if you know someone who might be, and uh, to share this podcast so that more people can find out about this amazing work that Eliza does.